so often you get to hear insight into how the pastor is processing those things, but what about other people? And hopefully we're going to have some other people who are going to come up and share similar uh, stories next few weeks. This morning we're talking about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And as we talk about that, we're going to talk about the cost of it. And that's specifically why I wanted to hear from him what he would say the cost of it is. Because being a follower of Jesus, I would say, might have a different meaning to you and me now than it would have been 2,000 years ago to them. Why? Because following someone today costs us nothing. I was thinking about an example of this to try to describe to you what I mean. When you think of a follower, you might think of uh, a website, you might think of social media. When someone's a follower of something, they like something. Well, in our house, we like the Toronto Maple Leafs. And we cheer for them and we follow them passionately. But the joke might be on them, because what does it cost us? Nothing. And here's what I mean. To be a follower of the greatest hockey team in the history of the NHL, do we, I think they beat San Jose last night, do we need to move to Toronto to be fans of that team? Do we need to sell our house and relocate to be followers of them? No. Does it require me to give up my job and change the course of my life? Not at all. Does it require us as a family, to go to games, to be present in their space, to be in the arena, to watch them live? Does it require me to do that, to be a follower of them? No, it doesn't. Do I need to rearrange the family calendar so that on game days, a hockey night in Canada, we never have company over. There's never plans. We are always present to watch them win every single hockey night in Canada. Do we have to do that as a family? No, we don't have to. Cooper was asking last night, can we watch some of the game? And it was bedtime. And I said, no, we're going to bed. Does that make us bad followers of the team? Do you see how it costs us? Nothing. Maybe you're a follower of something else. Maybe a less impressive hockey team, or maybe it's something completely unrelated that you're a follower of. But what are you a follower of? You see, if you choose for it to cost you something, I think that is motivated by you, you're the one being intentional. If you want to buy the jerseys and cost you something, you can do that. If you want to go to the games, you can do that. But you don't have to. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Some of us bring the same attitude, without even meaning it, into following Jesus. It costs us nothing. Do you need to sell your home and move to a new location to be a follower of Jesus? Do you have to attend an event? Are you required to be in a church, in this room, to be a follower of Jesus? Do you have to rearrange your schedule so that when you're gone and you can't be here, you make sure to tune into Facebook to watch that service? No. You can go through your entire life I prayed a prayer when I was six. So you go through your entire life from that moment. And following Jesus can cost you nothing. 
And if we're not careful, we can display to everyone that that's okay and acceptable. But what's that called? That's called cheap grace. And friends, this year, we are going to eliminate cheap grace in our church. And here's the disaster of believing in Jesus in that way. It misleads you to think that you are the center of your faith in Jesus, that God's world revolves around you, and it pulls the whole focus off the fact that it all revolves around who? Him. See, there's a tremendous cost to being a follower of Jesus, and we're going to look at stories. We're going to turn through the Gospels to a few different ones to look at what, them, what it cost them. It cost them their lives. Cost them their reputation, their jobs, their homes, everything. And if we're not careful, our grand illusion that we're putting on here is we just need to draw people in. I'm staring at the entrance. We just need to pull people in. Like if we just, if we just find a way to appeal to them, if we can be trendy enough, if we can advertise well enough, if we can just get our coworkers and friends, if they can just come in the door, and then maybe the pastor will give them something really encouraging. Talk about how incredible our faith is. All the benefits of it. Oh, but please don't let the pastor talk about how much work it is. Because if he just goes on and on and on and on about all the work, they're never going to want to come back. Make it easy, pastor. Make it easy. Maybe they'll stay. My friends, this year, as I'm thinking about what we're going to talk about, what we're going to preach about, more than anything, I hope that this year we as a family have a deeper understanding of the commitment that we've made. And we're going to get to an illustration in a few minutes that I think is really going to bring this home. That when we don't consider the commitment that we've made, maybe we've entered into an illusion that there is a commitment when truly there is none. What came to my mind as I was thinking about this was marriage. See, marriage maybe, for some of us, is the largest commitment that we've ever made. And if you haven't been married, here's some discouraging news for you. It's going to cost you everything, and it should. And you should think long and hard before you ask someone to marry you. Because you can get sucked into the same illusion, the illusion that it's all about you. And Chad, I asked him the question, it was interesting that he went that direction, that it's not about him, it's about someone else. He's thinking about his wife, he's putting his wife first. But we, friends, can get sucked into the illusion, the wedding ring, the vows, the pastor, that when we stand there and we make that promise that that's it, we did it. The task is done. The rest is easy. Just like this philosophy of, I prayed the prayer to believe in Jesus when I was little. It's all good. It's done. But what would happen to your marriage and to mine if we stood up and made that promise and gave each other rings, made those vows, and then quit on each other? Stop putting each other first. Stop communicating. 
acts of kindness disappear. Emotional vulnerability doesn't exist. Your friendship grows apart and apart and apart and maybe gets to the point where the friendship ends. Why don't you put the next slide up on the screen. Take a look at this. Claiming to believe in Jesus while not following him is like claiming to be married and not living with your spouse. And what I mean by that is this. If I were to ask you, if you were in that scenario and you and your spouse had grown apart, you're still married, you're still wearing your rings, but you've grown apart. And I asked you, are you married? And you look at the current evidence, you look at how your relationship is going, you look at its health. And you look at how poorly it's doing, but you still have the audacity to say yes. Why? Because you're wearing rings and you stood before a pastor and you made a promise. And you're clinging on to that like that's marriage. Friends, if the marriage died a decade ago, are you still married? And I have tough news for you. You might not be. And here's the tough news of being a follower of Jesus. That if we're still clinging on to the prayer that we prayed when we're five years old, that Jesus would forgive us of our sin and that we stopped following him the rest of our lives, or put the bare minimum amount of work into following him. And then I ask you the question, so are you a follower of Jesus? And you claim, I am. And I would look at your life and I would see the evidence of it and I would see zero following of him. And sometimes we're guilty of this in church. And we, we actually applaud that person. Good for them. They prayed when they were young. That is so encouraging. And then we don't ask the next question. Are you following him? We just assume because they prayed that when they were young, that they're in. It's done. It's like assuming that once you put on a ring, you can put nothing in your marriage the rest of your life and it will be fine. So my plea to you and to myself this year is to examine it again. Am I really married to my wife? Am I living as a spouse towards her or not? Or am I just depending on that promise I made years ago? Like we're not putting in the work to save ourselves. I'm not putting in work into my marriage to hope she puts on the ring. It's on. I'm putting... Work into it because I want it to stay alive. Do we consider the cost of this relationship and keeping it alive? These guys did. If you brought a Bible with you, the first story we're going to read is in Mark. So you can go ahead and turn there. We're also going to turn to Luke after this and then to Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the life story of Jesus being written down by some of his closest friends. And they tell different stories from Jesus' life. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, you can turn there. This is the story of Jesus calling one of his disciples to come and be a follower of him. And in Mark chapter 2, we meet someone named Levi. That was a good Hebrew name. You might know him by his other name, his Greek name. You may know him by the name Matthew. 
Matthew wrote the first gospel. You can actually go read the same story in Matthew. So Mark writes down this story of when Jesus calls the disciple Matthew. Look at these verses. Look at what it cost him. So this is Mark 2, verse 13. This is he, Jesus, went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him. He was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi. He was the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. What did he do in response? What did he do in response to that call by Jesus? What does the rest of the verse say? He what? He rose and he followed. Do you know what he didn't do? Jesus comes up and says, follow me. And he goes, I believe in you. I'm just going to keep doing this though. But once a week I'll get together with my friends and we'll sing. And Jesus says, no, come with me. No, I'm good. No, I trust you. You are who you say you are. Totally believe that. I got taxes to collect though. I got work. I can't just, Jesus, that would change the course of my life. I'm not doing that. I'm staying here. This is what I do. No, Jesus says, let's go. He doesn't say believe in me. He says, let's go. What does Levi do? The dude just leaves. Like, what would happen right now if I just walked out? Like, I just aimed for the door, opened the door, walked out. Are you guys just leaving? Like, is someone coming up to finish the sermon? Like, what's the game plan? You don't have one. Because you are really hoping I don't walk out in the middle of this. Like, unless you're really hungry, then maybe you do hope I walk out in the middle of this. They didn't have a plan for Matthew leaving. Like, no one collected taxes for the rest of that day, maybe the rest of that week. They were not expecting Matthew to just stand up and leave his life. But Jesus said, will you follow me? And they went. This is the cost of following Jesus. And this is how he had these encounters with his disciples. They left their lives behind. Turn to Luke. Let's read another one. So this is Luke chapter 9. So that's the next book of the Bible. We're going to start at the end of Luke 9. And then after that, we'll read a couple verses from the middle of Luke chapter 9. So where we're going to start is verse 57. And we're going to read the story of three different people who encounter Jesus. I'm going to warn you, this is going to get radical. You ready to get radical this morning? No, you're not. Let's go. This is much easier when the room is empty because everyone's excited when the room is empty. But okay, here we go. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, they said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Yes, that's it. It's like someone coming into church and sitting in the back row. Like, they've never been here before. And everyone's excited and we're clapping our hands. Like, they're here. We did it. This person comes up to Jesus and said, I'll follow. And Jesus' response is, yes. No, what does Jesus say? Verse 58. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. 
The son of man has nowhere to leave his head. Nowhere to leave his head. And the story never tells us if this guy follows or not. You're waiting for me to conclude the story. That's the conclusion of the story. This guy says, I'm in. And Jesus says, no, you're not. You haven't considered the cost at all. Your basic necessities, this is going to cost you your home. You don't understand. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're leaving everything if you come. You don't understand. What if that's the way we shook people's hands at the door when they walked into church, hey? Welcome here. First time, this is going to cost you everything. Service starts in 10 minutes. Go sit down. Verse 59. This is the second example. To another person, Jesus this time says, follow me. But his response, this person is, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That sounds awful considerate of Jesus, yeah. Why not? Let you go bury dad. But what is Jesus' response? Verse 60, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Leave him, let's go. What would that have meant to abandon your family at that moment? I was reading in the one commentary and they said it could have meant dad had already died, but most likely it meant dad was close to death and he wanted to be around for that moment because being a part of the family, that's important. It was connected to the Old Testament law. It was just part of being an active participant in your family and community, was being a part of that for your dad, for your family. And Jesus said, there are other people. He says, there are dead people. He's talking about spiritually dead people. There are people who don't know about God. Leave them at home. They'll have a funeral. We have work to do. Let's go. Well, that's bizarre. You've been told from a young age that Jesus is the most kind and caring and compassionate person you've ever met. And yet, he seems heartless. Why would it be that much more important to follow Jesus than your reputation, than the love for your family? The final example, this is verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one. The guy wants to go home and say goodbye to everyone. And Jesus' response, you're not ready. You're not fit. He uses this example immediately following it. You're not fit to be a follower of the kingdom if that's your response. Okay, so we have to decode this because this looks like the most heartless passage that we've ever read about Jesus. So why would he talk to people this way? Because of what Chad brought up. That at the center of every person is what they value the most. At the center of every human is what they worship. Everyone's a worshiper. We know this. And these different people worshipped different things. 
But do you know what these three people did not worship? What's his name? His name's Jesus. They didn't worship him. One worshiped reputation, one worshiped family, one worshiped comfort. They're not ready. It's going to cost them. Friends, this is a very different story maybe than you've heard before. This is costly. It's not cheap grace. Coming forward to this table to receive this sacrifice costs us something. Earlier in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, these famous verses. You've heard these before if you've been in church. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, this is Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose his life. This is the carrying of the cross beam. Like this was common in their day. When the Romans would execute you, you would receive your cross beam and you would carry your beam through town. And they killed you on the outside of town along the highway into the city. So everyone would know coming into town how seriously they take crime in the Roman Empire. You would carry your cross beam through town. Everyone in town would see. Jesus says to his followers, you want to follow me? All right. But you're going to have to pick it up and you're going to have to carry it with you wherever you go. Every day. Not once. Daily, you're going to have to pick it up to follow me. Some of you are wishing you stayed home this morning, eh? That's good. You should be. You should be reflecting on this. If you're about to get married, my greatest advice with you would honestly be to think twice. Really think about this. Darren, aren't you excited? I just got engaged. Are you sure? That's not a mean thing to say. Like, just like buying a home, hey? Yeah, we looked at the home for an hour or two and we got a mortgage for half a million bucks. You looked at the home for an hour or two and you just got a mortgage for half a million bucks. Wow, that's terrifying. No, it's exciting. Don't you understand the commitment that you just made? You know what that's going to cost you? You know what the interest rate is? This last example is from Matthew chapter 19, and this one gets ugly. And I gotta warn you, if you think the other ones were radical, this one could lose me my job, and I'm okay with it. Let's go to Matthew 19. I'm reading Jesus' stories here. Get mad at him. Matthew 19, this is the story of the rich young ruler. This is verse 16 of Matthew 19. And the reason why I preface this story in this way is because you're going to see in this story someone who lived the life of following Jesus. This is someone who did the religious practices. Like this isn't someone that needed motivation to be in church and sing the songs and give in the offering and volunteer and they did all of it. And yet it meant nothing. I don't have the whole story up, just a couple of key verses from the story. The rich young ruler. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would have, if you would, pardon me, enter life, keep the commandments. 
And he said to Jesus, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness. You should honor your father and mother, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Then it gets ugly. What do I still lack? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and, what does it say at the end? Follow me. You imagine having the arrogance to go up to Jesus and say, Jesus, what religious things do I need to do to be a good follower of God in heaven? And Jesus goes, well, the commandments. He goes, I follow everyone. I've done it. Very good. Is there anything else I need to do? And Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, there's one more thing. What is it? And Jesus goes right to his heart. And what does Jesus say? You need to take the thing you love the most and it needs to die. It needs to die. This was a rich young ruler. All this religious practice, maybe years and years of religious practice, and friends, it was worth nothing. Worth nothing. Why? Because he didn't love God. It was clear he loved something else more because Jesus said, well, just give up this money that you love so much. It wasn't that money's bad. He just went after the thing this guy loved the most. He said, you love it more than me. Give it up and come with me. And the guy goes away. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He went away sad because Jesus asked him to love God more than he loved himself. And the guy quit and the guy went home. He doesn't end up following Jesus. So what if, what if there are people in marriages who've been living it for decades and the relationship is dead and all of us are just sitting around, so how are you doing this week? Well, sure, it's cold outside, hey? And what, do you know what we're not bringing up in discussion with them? How's your marriage doing? Is it doing okay? Do you need some encouragement? Do you guys need to come over for a visit sometime? No, we're just letting that person go. Accountability is uncomfortable. It's just easier if we just leave that alone. It's like seeing someone who prayed a prayer to believe in Jesus when they were little, and then the following of God just deteriorates. And what's our response as a church family? Hey, how you doing? Sure, it's cold outside. Snowing like crazy, isn't it? You know what we don't ask them? How are you doing following Jesus? Are you growing? Are you struggling? Is it going well? Is it not going well? It's uncomfortable. It's just, it's better to leave well enough alone. When I interfere, that's awkward. What gives me the right to ask them that question? But what if they've been an active participant in the following of Jesus for years and years and years, and yet Jesus has never once been the center of their life, never taken over the position of the thing they love the most. 
And one day they're going to stand before him as you read in Matthew, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, when they get to heaven. And Jesus' response to them is going to say, I never knew you. I never knew you. But I did all these things. I never knew you. As followers of Jesus, we have a moment when we pledge ourselves to him. For many of us, it is when we're young. And then we have this symbolic act that we often do as a church family where we pledge ourselves to one another. It's when we become members of the church. Now, is that entrance into heaven material? No. But I think it's symbolic of something that's deeply connected to our pledge to God and to one another. You know how different, I was thinking about this this week, do you know how different me and Chantel's life would look if I took, say, a copy of our wedding vows, say I printed them off, and I taped them on the, what, mirror of our bathroom or something like that, and every single day when I walk in there, I'm going to read the promise that I made. Put her first, I read that. You know, serve her, better or worse. Richer or poor, you just you look at all those things. Sickness, health, you look at all those different promises I made. Every day, if I had to stare at that, how would that change the way that I love her? I think what we need to do this year as we invite people in to be followers of Jesus is reflect deeply on the commitment that we've made to him. And for a lot of us, the commitment that we've made to one another. When you become a member of our church, when you get baptized, you go through this process of asking, do you want to commit yourself to the family? And maybe you see what we mean when we say membership, but then you never see it again. Well, if you look down in the pews in front of you, our membership document is actually printed right down there behind the offering envelopes. It's in front of every single one of you. And I want to encourage you, if you want to take it home, take it out. Throw it in your Bible. Make it a bookmark. Take it with you. And that is not Holy Scripture. That little piece of paper sitting in there tucked behind the pew art is not inspired words from Yahweh above. You're not going to find those quotations in here. It is a list of the life that we are pledging to try to live. It's relational. Ah, friends, it's more. Friends, it's more than a formal pledge that we make. It's the life that we desire to live in. Look at those practices. If you, if you don't remember what it says in the document, feel free to just pull it out of the pew right now and look at it. Look at what we're promising to do. It's the pursuit of holiness. It's the pursuit of godliness. And it's our trust in Jesus for salvation. It's all stuff straight out of the Bible. There's a cost to this. There's a cost to being a follower of the king. And just like I try to explain to my boys who are too young to understand the the depth of the cost. They understand what it cost Jesus. And then they see the way that mom and dad live it out. And one day when they're older, they'll understand how much it's cost mom and dad to be followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus grow in different areas and become different things. 
And the next slide right here you see, different elements of discipleship. This is not all-encompassing, but it's different elements of what a mature Christian should look like and should develop into. See, just like in a marriage, if you saw a married couple and you saw basic elements missing from their marriage, you would question if it's healthy or not. Well, I would say if you follow, bump in to meet a Jesus follower and you don't see worship, you don't see a student pursuing knowledge of God, if you don't see a member of the church family, like someone who's actively participating in a body of believers, if you don't see someone with an outward focus who pursues other people, then I would say that's not a mature Christian. That's a bold thing to say, but I would say that you're not encountering a mature Christian. I would say these might not be all-encompassing, right? There might be other things as well. This should be evident in my life. You asked me to be your pastor. If you don't see those four things in my life, you need to come hold me accountable. That's a loving thing to do. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? Is it clear to you? That's a loving thing to do. To come to me and say, Darren, I see that you're a worshiper of God. I see that you love being an active participant in a body of believers. I see that you are a student of the word, growing in your knowledge of God. But I just don't see an outward focus to you. Are you pouring into Christians younger than you? Are you pouring into the non-Christian community? Or is it just all inward focused? Because I want to see you develop in that area. I think that might even be a weakness of yours to reaching maturity. Maybe there's other things that you can think of that aren't up there. It's interesting to me that if you look at our ministry team, how we scatter out the different teams in our church, they kind of aim in those different directions. And there's more to worshiping than sitting in a room corporately. And there's more, there's more to caring for the congregation than being at a men's ministry event. But I'm saying that those are representations of elements of a healthy disciple. These guys followed. These guys became students of their teacher. They became worshipers of their teacher. They had to depend and care for one another. And Jesus told them clearly that that would be their sign to the world that they were followers of Jesus, that they loved one another. And they died reaching out to other people. They were mature disciples and followers of Jesus. And they encompassed these different things. The love of God and the love of others and the pursuit of God and the pursuit of others. But do you and I display these things? You want to make a New Year's resolution? Lose five pounds? Come on. Love God, love others, pursue God, pursue others. Make that a New Year's resolution. And here's it. Friends, here's the crux of it. Start small. You are not going to be able to match the faith and following of Jesus of one of the elders of the church, one of the I don't know, most mature people in the church, grandpa and grandmas in the church. You won't be able to match them day one. You take a step. Your goal for New Year's is to lose 20 pounds. You won't do it on day one. You take a step. You might come to a worship service. 
You might spend more time with different people in the church family to develop a support system. You might start reading your Bible for the first time in years. You might think of ways that you could love others ahead of yourself, pursue other people. Maybe it starts small, maybe it starts tomorrow, but it starts and health develops and grows. Friends, this is the trajectory of our family. The word of the year is this. You don't even know you're getting word of the year. Word of the year is this. Better smile. It's intentional. We're going to be intentional this year. You're going to get so sick and tired of hearing me say the word intentional. And that's intentional of me. Because without being intentional, you just drift and you coast. You get complacent and you stall. But we're going to be intentional. And I'm not going to be perfect at it. You're going to have to hold me accountable. And that's why I'm part of this family, because I want to be held accountable. But do you know how many of you hold me accountable? Who has the gall to come up to the pastor and say, Pastor, you need to work on this. Come on, bring it on, let's go. And I want to do the same to you. I want this to be the kind of family that we have. Because I think that this room has hundreds of people in it, but I don't know if it has hundreds of mature followers of Jesus in it. And I think it could. I'm going to bet my life that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that could happen. And that's what I want to see happen. I'm going to call the worship team up, and as they come up, I want to look at the last slide. It's a reflection on Mark chapter 2. When Jesus came by Matthew's tax booth, he said, follow me. And Matthew's response, Levi's response was, he rose and he followed Did he know what it was all going to cost him? I don't know if he understood all of it, but he understood enough. And he rose and he followed anyway. Heavenly Father, my prayer for us as a group of worshipers, as a family, is that you would transform our hearts because we desire to be followers of you. And I thank you that you lead us and develop us and transform us to look like your son Jesus, that we are becoming more like the image of God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we'd be intentional this year in the way that we love you, in the way that we worship you. Why? Because we believe in you. Why do we believe in you? Because you are who you said you are. You are the beautiful one. You are the one who made the sacrifice for our sin. And we believe that. We believe that with all our hearts. Thank you for this morning and thank you for the gift of Jesus on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can believe in you and be forgiven of our sin if we repent of our sin and have new life in you. And I pray that people this year would come to know you and find that new life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us for one more song.